0: Thank you. Morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day. Um, We're continuing this morning with the series on holiness. I'm going to just just open briefly in prayer and, and dive into the Word. Can you hear me? Okay, marvelous. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your glorious sunshine. We pray, God, that as we gather around your Word, You would illuminate our hearts by the light of your Son, that you would grant us to understand you more powerfully and more deeply, that you would draw us deeper into relationship with you, that you would reveal your holiness, your kindness, your mercy, your grace, and your love, in Jesus' name. My sermon this morning is entitled, Holy God. Um, I'm going to do a follow-up sermon called, Holy People. And and I'm going to suggest that what you think about what God is like is the most important thing that you can think. What you think about what God is like is going to inform the way you interact with other people, the way you interact with the world around you, the way you interact with your family, your friends, and the way that you interact with God. If I to write, God is like, and leave a blank space, Whatever you filled in next would have profound and eternal implications. So one of the facets that we're going to look at, and, and actually one of, as, as, as Stan shared last week, it's not just what God is like, it's what God is. is His holiness. So I'm going to look this morning at a couple of things about the holiness of God. The purpose of right thinking says john piper is to achieve right feeling ever thought about that you know that feelings are are, are, are wonderful servants they're terrible masters what we feel is as real as as any other aspect of us and if if what we think about god produces the right feeling about god greater love greater admiration greater adoration greater worship then, then that's a good thing. Satan knows a whole bunch of right things about God, but his response is hatred. So I'm going to, I'm going to explore some stuff this morning and hopefully get to right feeling. In the Old Testament, um, the word holy is, is the Hebrew word kadosh. It means consecrated. It means separate. It means set apart for a special purpose. Um, when, we, when we see holy in the Old Testament, what, what we're reading is that, that whoever this is being applied to, or whatever this is being applied to, is something that is other to everything else. Now, this can be mundane. It can be, it can be a holy vessel, or something that carries water. It can be um, a holy meal. It can be any number of things. I, I don't know whether you grew up in a house where um, there was a towel, or a set of towels that was set aside for when the queen came to visit. Nobody else got to use that. You know that towel? Or, or that set of teacups? Yeah. yeah? The royal teacups. The, the queen never came to visit, but it didn't matter. It was set aside for a special purpose. Yeah? Identify with that? So, so in, in, the, in the Old Testament, kadosh usually applies in a very real way. It's not abstract in a very real way, to something or someone who is set apart for a holy purpose, for a separate purpose. And when it's applied to God, it's a demonstration that God is so completely different to us. Theologians say that God is both transcendent and imminent, which sounds scary, but it really just means this. Transcendent means He is above us, He is different to us, He is holy, He is vastly greater and kinder and more merciful and gracious than we can ever imagine. He is transcendent. He is above. He is imminent. What does that mean? He mean it means he's close to us. It means we have access. And and sometimes we, we focus on God totally on the one side, his transcendence, or totally on the other side, his imminence, and we lose sight of the whole thing, which is that he's both of those things, even though they feel different. Who here has been to the sea on a calm day. Imagine veggies down here. You've been to the sea on a calm day? Raise your hand. Okay. Has everybody here been to the sea at some point? Otherwise, this is going to be difficult to understand. Okay, so if you go to the sea on a calm day, when it's flat and glassy, and there aren't big waves, you would think the sea is an amazing place. It's safe. You can swim in it. You can let your kids play in it. This is just It's just an amazing place. And if you had to describe to somebody who'd never seen the sea, maybe somebody who lives in the middle of the Sahara, who has no frame of reference, if your experience of the sea was Vecchi's beach on a calm uh, winter's day, like today, you would think that's what it's like. It's flat and it's calm and it's easy. And you'd be right. But you wouldn't be completely right. Because if you've been in the sea on a really, really big day, when the sea's massive and when it can break ships in half and, and when it's like a Nazare, which is a break in Portugal, that has 100-foot waves, your information to the guy from the Sahara was perhaps not entirely accurate. It was true. It just wasn't the whole picture. And God is like that. God, God can be veggies on a calm day and God can be the raging seas that'll, that'll snap a, a ship in half. It's the same sea. So, so we can we can camp around one aspect of God's character, one aspect of what he's like, and the one aspect that sometimes perhaps in the modern church, certainly in the West, that we avoid is God's holiness because it makes us uncomfortable because we recognize at the most profound level that we're actually not like that. It's easier to think of God as a, as a kindly grandfather shuffling around in pantofles in heaven Ready to pat you on the head for doing the smallest thing, and and actually, God is he he is kind and he is gracious and merciful, but he is also holy. You know the word in the New Testament, um, the Greek word that is translated as holy, is the word um, hagios. It means awful. Yeah, it means awful. It's uh, um, the idea is terrifying something that inspires awe. Yeah, you know, we can say a hamburger is awesome. Yeah, okay, but, but it doesn't inspire awe. Awe is like this. Awe is, is standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or standing at the peak of Mount Everest and looking down, and it takes your breath away. That's awe-inspiring. That's God. So um, there's a world of difference between thinking about something in, in terms of, of theory and, and experiencing it for yourself. Those are two different things. And actually, they produce different feelings. Who here has seen a picture of a great white shark? Raise your hand. OK. At the time that you saw that picture of the great white shark, were you trembling in your boots? No. Filled with a sense of dread? No? Nobody? Well, I had an experience recently. I was paddling in my fishing ski off uh, Zinkwazi, I was about two and a half kilometers out to sea, and a great white, about five meters, my boat is five and a half meters, and it was half a meter shorter, started circling me, circled me four or five times. And, and the, the feeling I experienced was quite different to seeing a picture of a great white in, in a book. <laughs> quite different quite different. Um, and then when the, the shark disappeared, and I wondered, well, this could be a good thing or a bad thing, because I know how great whites hunt. They, they go deep, and they come up fast. Um, I, I did wonder. I wonder what's going to happen next. And that wasn't a theoretical musing about the nature of God. That was a very profound consideration of whether I was going to get chomped by a great white shark. And, and what happened was that it actually swam towards me. Instead of around the boat, it swam right up to me, and rolled on its side a little bit and had a look, and looked into my soul with its big black eye. And, and I had a, an appreciation of the awesomeness of that creature that I simply could not get reading about it or looking at a picture in a book. And, and we're going to look this morning at, at some people in the Bible who experienced God in the way that I experienced that great white shark, up close and personal, and it gave them a perspective on the awesomeness and the holiness of God in a way that, that they wouldn't get just without a practical experience of it. See, my, I'm convinced that the great white shark is, is set apart from all other fish. I have held a sardine in my hand and it wasn't the same experience. Um, When Moses met God at the burning bush at Mount Horeb, Horeb is another word for Sinai, so um, I'd like you to have that in mind as we look at it, because we're going to look at a few instances of people around Mount Horeb this morning. Exodus records that Moses was afraid to look at God, and, um, and he was probably right to be afraid to look at God, because the Bible says that no man has looked upon God and lived up to a point at the moment that that was written, it was true. And in fact, um, Moses hid his face from God when he was speaking to him in the burning bush. And yet, if you read the story of Exodus and you read Numbers and you read Deuteronomy, you see that that Moses ascends the, the mountain of God, Horeb or Sinai, and he speaks face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend. So his encounter with God didn't cause uh, Moses to run and hide like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It actually spurred him on to go and seek the presence of God and meet him face to face. And the consequence of meeting God face to face was that the face, of God, the face of Moses was radiant, it, it shone with the glory of God. But I'm going to pick it up um, from Exodus 17, verse 1. Very interesting scripture. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Just to let you know, Moses has, has, by the hand of God, rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. They're now in the wilderness, in the desert, and they are advancing um, one stage at a time. And that's what this is talking about. Um They moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Bear in mind that these people had seen... God, take out every god of of Egypt, and defeat the mighty army of the Egyptians, and rescued them with with His mighty hand, and killed the firstborn of of Egypt. So they're picking a they're picking a fight with the wrong being here by complaining. Um, just on that point, I've been to Egypt, and I was in a tour tour bus with a, a bunch of Christians, and And it was glorious because we had cold water and the bus was air-conditioned and it was fantastic. Everybody got on with everybody. It was amazing. We were singing songs and and getting to know each other, people from all over the place, mostly South Africa. And then the bus broke down. And we spent three hours in the sun waiting for repair. And I saw, saw all us Christian folk become quite grumpy and grumble and moan and complain about every little thing. And I thought, yeah, we can't judge the Israelites. They had 40 years of it. We had three hours and we were complaining. So anyway, that's an aside. Um, And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. And here's an important bit. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. If you have your Bible and you're reading it, please underline that. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, so there's this incident where, where they're at the Mount Horeb, and, and the people are complaining. And God says to Moses, Go and strike a rock, and water will flow forth. Hold that image. We're going to return to it in a second. Moses 33, further down the line. Uh, Moses said to God, Please show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness. So that's his glory. Pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you will stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and sh- you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Doesn't that strike you as weird? Why would, why would God say that Moses could not see his, the fullness of his glory? He couldn't see his face. His face is the radiance of the glory of God. It's a strange thing, right? And, and what's more, he's at Horeb, he's at Mount Sinai, the place where the law is given, and, and he says, stand in the cleft of the rock in a cave. And I'll cover you with my hand, and, and I'll cause my goodness to, to, to pass by you, and, and you will not look at my face, but you can see the back of me. All of that just looks a little odd. Until we understand that this is a foreshadowing of what was going to happen in Jesus. Jesus is described as the rock. In fact, Paul says that Jesus is the rock in the desert from which the water flowed, and the rock that traveled with the people of Israel. So, so here we have God hiding Moses in a cleft, in a, in, in a space created in the rock, specifically for him, in a cave, in this rock, which is Sinai. And, and God covers him with his hand. This is a picture, a foreshadowing, of what Jesus is going to do for us. Because we are hidden in the rock, which is Christ— and if we're hidden in the rock, which is Christ, we can experience the glory of God, not only seeing the back of it in the foreshadowing, but seeing his face, face to face, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So so we have this image of, of Jesus being the rock and in, in which we're hidden. Why couldn't Moses look on God's face and live? Well, it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit to do with, with God being like the sea on a, on a crazy big day that breaks ships. See, the love of God coming into contact with sin is the wrath of God. That's what the wrath of God is. Um, God is infinite. That means he is infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely holy. All of God in all eternity past and all eternity future is holy. And if that holiness comes into contact with sin, sin cannot stand in its presence. And if that sin is in us, we cannot stand in his presence. We'll be totally, totally destroyed. The only way we can stand in the presence of a holy God is if we are as holy as he is, which is Jesus. If we are hidden in Christ in the cleft of the rock we can stand in the presence of God and not be destroyed because we're like him. In fact, the Bible says that we have become, says Paul, the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why when 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 you read scriptures like the wrath of God has been satisfied by the cross, it means that that the love of God can come into contact with us and doesn't experience or doesn't come into into contact with sin because the sin that we were has been dealt with in Christ and we have the righteousness of God. It's, it's not that, that God is no longer holy. It's that we are covered. And we're going to deal with that in a moment that, uh, that has some consequences. So, so we've seen how Moses asks God to show him his glory and he's hidden in a, in a cave in Mount Horeb. That's not the only time a cave in Mount Horeb comes into play in the Old Testament. In fact, I'm going to read a scripture now about Elijah, and theologians say that it's the same cave. Listen to this, 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. And he, that's Elijah, arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So the context is, Elijah has just defeated the prophets of Baal, He's called out fire from heaven. It's taken up the uh, sacrifice on the altar with water. And, and Jezebel gets angry and he runs. And he hides in the, in, the, in the cave. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? If, just, if you read this text, I haven't got time to deal with it. But the word of the Lord here is a person. It's, this is Jesus. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life and they take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount, this is Horeb, before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, just as what happened with Moses. And a great and strong wind Tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. So Moses, representing the law, comes to the mountain of God where the law was given, and is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and encounters the glory of God. And it looks like something. It looks like God demonstrating his kindness. Elijah comes to the mountain of God, representing the prophets, hides in the cleft of the same rock, and he experiences... God passing by in different ways, in earthquake and fire and mighty wind. Rocks are getting shattered. It's like a, it's like a, a big day. The sea is wild. And, and actually, the, the, the true presence of God is not in any of those things, it's in the still small voice. See, Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law demonstrate to us beyond any question that when we are hidden in Christ, The presence of God looks like many things, but most of all, it's the still small voice of our shepherd. It should remind us of another time where Moses and Elijah meet on a mountain with the presence of God. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says, we don't know what mountain it is, but it says that they ascended a high mountain. And, and Jesus and three of his disciples are on this high mountain. And they meet Elijah and Moses. And Jesus is transformed. And he starts radiating the glory of God. And God speaks. And, and it's so interesting to me that, that the one who is the rock in whom Moses and Elijah are hidden is revealed on a mountain and, and demonstrates face to face the glory of God. And the Bible says of Jesus that he is the exact image, the exact representation of the glory of God. And we see him face to face and behold his glory. Coming back to the Old Testament. So now in Numbers, this is, this is a long way down the line. This is the people of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years, One entire generation has been wiped out. Moses and Aaron, um, Caleb and Joshua survive from the first generation. Everyone else is dead. Their children are here. And uh, there's a familiar scene. Listen to this. Numbers 20. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses, and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? You heard this before, right? This happened 40 years ago. Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. The, the good old days are never good, the good old days. This is, <laughs> this is an interesting thing. Um, then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the, the assembly to the entrance of the tent of, Mo, of meeting and fell on their face. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother. And this is at Horeb, by the way. And tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So previously he said, strike the rock. This time he says, tell the rock to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them. He showed himself holy. See, God told Moses this time, speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. Previously, he said, strike the rock, and he struck the rock. So, just because God has done something one way, one time, doesn't mean he's going to do it that way every time. Moses didn't listen to God. He struck the rock in anger. In wrath. Jesus... Experience the wrath of God so that from us, his followers would flow rivers of living water. But it wasn't Moses' place to do this. In fact, it's not the first time we see Moses losing his temper. He lost his temper when he, he broke the, the tablets on which the law of Moses was written by the hand of God, by the very finger of God. He lost his temper time and time again throughout the 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 period of the wilderness experience of exodus and i can understand that because my goodness if you see what he was dealing with i can i get it i get it but he didn't deal with his anger and because he didn't deal with his anger and he didn't demonstrate that god was holy in the way that he spoke to the rock we speak to jesus he was denied entry into the promised land and, and anger can do that. I, I had a major issue with anger that I, God dealt with in me. And anger can prevent you from entering into the promises of God. The, the, what we learn from this text is that the holiness and the anger of man do not mix. One prevails. So what does the holiness of God mean to us? I'm going to look at this in a lot more detail in my next sermon on, on holy people, but just to give us a foretaste, I'm going to read from 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, your minds, eh? what we think determines what we do. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Where, where Peter writes, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the commandment given to the people of Israel in the Exodus. And and Peter says, As God is holy, you shall be holy in all your conduct. See, we are holy because of the righteousness of Christ. That's our legal position. But somehow, Peter says, that should bleed into our conduct. What we do should reflect what we are. We are holy. That's a given. We have the righteousness of Christ. Now we must live in a way that is consistent with that. Why? Because God is holy. In other words, the primary reason that we behave in a holy way is because we are image bearers of God. We have the authority and the responsibility to demonstrate to the rest of the world what God is like by showing them. We are holy because He is holy. Our primary reference point is God because we are are commanded to show the world What God looks like. Quite a scary thought. Goes on to say, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Conduct yourselves with fear. That's not, I'm scared of God because he's angry. That's a reverential awe because we know what it looks like. We, We know how completely glorious and holy and kind and merciful and righteous God is. We know that God is not just... Uh, veggies on a a calm day, but there's going to come a time where he comes to judge the unrighteousness of the world, where he comes to mete out justice, where he comes to, to demonstrate that he's not going to put up with the violence and the unholiness of man forever. And that's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. You know, I often speak to people about the love of God, and they say, well, if if God is love, how can he send people to hell? Well, C.S. Lewis says nobody's going to be in hell who didn't choose to go there. Because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at what's happening around the world and see that, that justice demands that the wickedness of man face eternal consequences. but the higher root is that they experience the grace of God now and turn and be ransomed and be restored and be made whole and be redeemed. Even, even, even in the structure of the, the, the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat is situated above the law. God triumphs, mercy triumphs over judgment, but those who reject mercy will face judgment. Our job is to demonstrate the love and the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the love of God to a world that desperately needs it. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the glory of the treasures that you've hidden in it for us to discover. We pray, God, that as we've looked at your scriptures today, that they would sink deep into our hearts and minds. We pray, God, as we, as we come face to face with your glory, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another. We pray, God, that you would grant us eyes to see what you have given to us in your text, in, in the person of Jesus, in every story in the Bible. And, and even more than that, Lord, won't you show us how to reflect you to the world. Won't you take us, Lord, as, as vessels from whom living water rushes out to a dry and, and desperately thirsty world? Have your way in us, Lord. Grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name.